This is a very famous passage of Scripture, of course. Everyone is familiar with the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And it's one of those texts that makes you stop and think, did Jesus ever have a normal conversation? Right? Was he ever just like, hey, how's it going? Funny brother we're having, right? It's always rife with theological meaning and mystery. And of course, I think the answer is that these are the ones recorded by John that we might believe. Uh, he says if, if it were to be written down everything Jesus did or said, the world would not hold all of the books. But we see here a third in a series of strange conversations. A couple weeks ago, we saw Jesus calling his first disciples. He says to Nathaniel, hey, when you were miles away sitting under that sycamore tree, I saw you. Nathaniel was taken aback by that. Last week in chapter 3, we saw the d- discussion between Nicodemus and Jesus in which he tells him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, what do you mean? Do I need to crawl back into my mother's womb? This is impossible. You can only be born once. It's a, a strange conversation, certainly if we, if we don't uh, take it for granted, having heard it so many times in our lives. And then here in chapter 4, we have this discussion in which Jesus offers a woman living water, and tells her this water will make it so she is never thirsty again. Now, we did look at this story uh, a couple of, uh, a year and a half ago maybe, I guess we looked at it, uh, and we emphasized the evangelical evangelist aspect of it, Jesus sharing the gospel with the woman and how then she turned around and shared the gospel with her entire town. She became the first Gentile missionary in the church, the first female missionary in the church, and was an incredibly successful missionary. We're going to focus a little differently uh, today, but we do see those aspects of those last two conversations. We see that come and see mentality. When Jesus' uh, first disciples said to him, where are you staying? He said, come and see. Come and spend time with me. And we talked about how that is how we ought to be, uh, bringing the gospel to people, not with this uh, hammer you on the street real quick, you've got to believe, bam, but to be willing to spend time with people and show them that we do care about them, not just about our numbers, but that, that they are precious in God's sight. Then last week we saw that even though this is certainly a theme in Jesus' ministry, he doesn't beat around the bush forever. He doesn't just say, oh, let's just hang out and eventually you'll by osmosis absorb what I'm teaching and how I'm living. No, he says to Nicodemus, this great teacher, you must be born again. He calls him to a moment of uh, repentance and putting his faith in Christ. And that, too, is a necessary part of evangelism. And those two things actually come together in this story in chapter 4. We see Jesus spending time with the woman at the well, being patient, bearing with her, but also then using the law to break her and bring her to the foot of the cross, which is to say, at this point in salvific history, to a point where she's ready to admit her need for a Savior. Now, a little background here. We all know that the the Jews and the Samaritans didn't like each other, had no dealings with each other. Uh, That's mentioned parenthetically here in the text. Uh, You know it from the story of the Good Samaritan, but it might behoove us to just look at why. And so let's go back a thousand years, let's say, and and cover very quickly what had happened here. You remember that there was originally one Israel, north and south, together in a united monarchy. David was the king, Solomon was the king over the whole thing. Then it split in the 10th century B.C. into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Judah. So Israel and Judah. In 722 B.C., God punished the north for their apostasy and their sin 
by allowing the Assyrians to come in and overtake them. The Assyrians were a huge empire, and they were so successful because they did not mess around. They were going to take over, and they were going to stay in power, and you were not going to rebel. And the way they accomplished this was that they would take all of the kind of upper class, the leaders, the educated people in a a country that they conquered, and they would take them away in exile forever. And they would sprinkle them around their empire. And then as they sprinkled them, they'd grab other people and say, all right, you're coming to this other place. And they did that with Israel. This sort of forced and intermarrying kind of synchronization of religions and cultures until this was no longer Israel. This was a whole other place, Samaria. And Samaria didn't have any history but being part of the Assyrian Empire. So they had no desire to rebel. It was cruel and calculated, but very effective. So now you have basically two different groups. And what happened is after a time we read in, in the book of Kings that uh, the Assyrians said, e, we might be upsetting the God of this land. Why don't you bring back some priests, have them teach this new people that we've kind of created out of uh, many other peoples, teach them how to worship that God. So they bring back some, some priests, they teach them the basics of what we might call biblical uh, old covenant worship, and So they sort of had a form of Judaism, but it was incomplete. They had just the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. They didn't have the rest, so they knew very little of of how God wanted to be worshipped. They knew very little about the promised Messiah. They they sort of worshipped God in their own way, but they still also worshipped pagan gods here and there. And you have now two groups that are close enough to really hate each other, but separated by a huge gulf. Then add in the fighting. Remember when we went through the book of Nehemiah? This is six, seven years ago. You remember, just nod yes. Um, And there was this attempt after uh, the south had also been exiled. They were allowed to come back. And they rebuilt the temple, and it wasn't nearly as amazing. And then they they rebuilt uh, the wall around the city. And there were Samaritans trying to stop them. They would stage attacks. They would throw rocks. They would just try and break their spirit. There's a guy named Sam Ballot who came out, and he's, he's just calling them out while they're building. And they're like, ignore him, ignore him, ignore him. And, and, and he was trying to keep them from rebuilding. And they hated the Samaritans for that. And it even gets worse. Because a little while later, uh, that same Sam Ballot built another temple on Mount Gerizim. You see, part of Judaism is you go to the temple at this time, Second Temple Judaism, the Samaritans couldn't have people going to the temple. That's not in Samaria. So they said, on this mountain, this is where the blessings were rehearsed as part of the covenant, we'll build our own temple. And they did. And for a while, they worshipped there. A couple hundred years, actually. And then, about 150 years before Jesus' ministry began, the Hasmoneans, which were Jewish militants, went to that temple and destroyed it. Now imagine, this, this is horrific. This is like, can you imagine the bad blood if, if a group of Christians went to the Dome of the Rock and, and destroyed it? Or went to Mecca or went to Medina? It, it's, it's just the worst possible relations and it stews and simmers and it gets worse with every passing year to the point where they'll throw rocks at each other if they see each other. At best, they'll avoid each other. Jesus even avoids going through Samaria. You see this when you, follow, you take your map out and follow where he's going. This was the normal thing. You cross over the Jordan River. If you're going from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, you go north, and then you cross over again. It was a standard. It was most of the, the routes just went that way. 
And, and so you would go around because you didn't want to become unclean. This is not just Gentiles, it's those Gentiles, the extra unclean ones, the Samaritans. And so you remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000, right? They, they feed everybody, and then they go and they pick up the leftovers, and there's 12 baskets full of leftovers. And you go, what? where did they get 12 baskets? Some, the kid was like, I got five loaves, two fish. Someone else was like, I got 12 baskets if you want these. No, the disciples each had a basket. The basket was actually to hold, while you were traveling, your clothing, your food, even the straw you would sleep on in, cl- in case you came in contact with a Samaritan area and you wanted to keep everything from becoming all defiled and unclean all at once. They wanted nothing to do with each other at all. But in this case, it says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. We don't know why. Probably the Holy Spirit led him, I believe. They've been traveling. Jesus is tired. He says, you guys go ahead and go get some food. I'm going to sit here and just rest. It's about noon, and Jesus is resting. And this is when this woman, whose name we don't know, comes to draw water from the well, from Jacob's well. It's an odd time of day to draw water, and a lot of people have drawn a lot of conclusions from this, and I think they're probably, for the most part, right. You see... The, the pitcher would probably be about this tall. It would either be an earthenware vessel or a collapsible leather pouch kind of thing. Either way, very difficult to carry. You know, you've, you've carried big amounts of water before. For some reason, this was women's work. No men were like, no, I got it. I, they, so, so what the normal thing would do is go early in the morning before the blazing hot sun came out in the desert and started baking everything. Women would come. They would gather They would draw their water, and while they were waiting in line, they would socialize. It was like the first water cooler, right? The conversation, what's going on, they'd catch up with each other. And it was was really a very lively time. And yet, this woman's coming when the heat of the day is full on. And when we put that detail together with something Jesus reveals about her a little later, we start to see a picture emerge of a woman who's not really welcome with the rest of the community who's perhaps an outsider, a a bit of a a pariah. And so she comes, and for whatever reason, she comes at noon, and she comes in God's providence right when Jesus is sitting there. And he talks to her, and that is crazy. And you say, that doesn't sound crazy. we got to throw our minds back into their setting, their culture, a time when there was actual serious rabbinical debate about whether women had souls. You see, the, the Roman world was starting to give women like rights and stuff. You know, there's even limited property rights and stuff. And, and there's this backlash in a very conservative corner of Judaism. And so there's a prayer, unironic prayer. Blessed are you, O Lord, my God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. That was a thing. And Jesus comes on the scene. He's like, this is a thing? Bonk! And he knocks it down. And this is part of, of that situation. A very male-dominated society, and it would have been unheard of. It was unheard of for a man to talk to his own wife in public, let alone this random woman who's getting water at noon, which tells you everything you need to know, quote-unquote, about her. But not only was she a woman, she was a Gentile. And not only was she a Gentile, she was one of those Gentiles that we really hate because remember what they did. And yet Jesus, even though he knew, should he drink from her receptacle, he would be made unclean. He doesn't despise her 
for being a woman. He doesn't despise her for being uh, a, a Gentile, for being a Samaritan. He doesn't see her as subhuman. He engages her in conversation. He asks her for a drink. A woman. A Gentile. A Samaritan. And beyond all that, he knew her status in the community. He knew it better than she did, it seems. He remembers it better than she does. She was probably... I would say probably an outcast in some sense. And he's about to offer this woman an amazing gift. And there's this wonderful conversation just rife with subtext. And I think it's perfect to look at it in its context because when you look at it right after chapter 3, you see what John is up to. You look at Nicodemus and then you look at this conversation with the woman at the well. You see that there's a lot in common. That Jesus comes with this spiritual heavenly offer. And, and uh, the spiritual exhortation and that both Nicodemus and the woman at the well kind of return it with a very worldly and earthly response. Wait, born again? Wait, live? oh yeah, it'd be great if I could get the water and then I wouldn't have to come back here and draw water every day. That's a, that's a pain. And yet even though they're so similar, they're opposites. They're opposites in so many ways. For, check this out. Nicodemus goes by night intentionally to initiate a conversation with Jesus. He's so committed to doing it, he'll do it under cover of darkness. She wants nothing to do with this conversation. She's looking for an out at every step of the way until he pulls her in. Jesus must initiate. Nicodemus comes at night. This is at high noon. Opposite, of course. Nicodemus is rich. She's poor. He's a man. She's a woman. He's a Jew. She's a Gentile. He's learned and powerful, the ultimate insider part of the Sanhedrin. She's uneducated and powerless, the ultimate outsider, even in her own little town. He's righteous by the world's eyes. She is sinful by the world's eyes. But both of them need the same thing. They both need what Jesus came to give us. Salvation by his death and resurrection. What we see Jesus do here is what he always seems to do in the Scriptures. Give people these little unopened packages, and they can either open them or not. The rich young ruler comes, "Ah, yeah, no, everything you say, I've done it, I'm good. And when Jesus says, here, you need salvation, they go, and walks away. Nicodemus did open it. And of course, you already, spoiler alert, know that so does the woman at the well, because Dave read the whole text for us. But Jesus gives her this gift with no thought that maybe as a woman, as a Gentile, as an outcast, she might not deserve it. None of us deserve it. Jesus is not interested in these categories. So he offers her a drink. She's completely blown away. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. How are you asking me for a drink? And he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is you speak to, you would ask me for a drink. And I would give you living water. And there's this little dance, this little, this little sparring of words by which he tells her he can give her water that will fully and permanently quench the thirst that she has at the core of her being. And I think, again, we've got to try and thrust ourselves back into that world. For us, water is it's just a thing. It's necessary, but we've got it. Right? I, I just went to the doctor. I had that, you're about to turn 40 in a minute check up how's the warranty holding up thing one thing he told me of many was you need more water 
you need to drink a lot more water. And I was like, okay. So I got these jugs of water, and I'm like, I guess I should go drink water. It's a, it's a chore. In the ancient Near East, life was about getting enough water. You know, when you walk around in that part of the world and look at how dry everything is, they would work until they were half dead for water. They would kill for water. They would die for water. And, and Jesus is offering something that he says is like water, only so much better. Living water. And like Nicodemus, she responds in this very uh, thick-headed way. Well, that sounds convenient. Yeah, give me that. I don't like coming to draw water. It's, it's, a, it's a chore for me. Just like we often respond to the gospel in these earthly ways. We want an easier life. Maybe God will give me that. We want health and wealth and prosperity. Maybe that's what God wants to offer me. And there's all too many preachers willing to say that. But Jesus is not saying that. And, you know, just like Nicodemus said, I don't get it. Born again? What do you mean? I used to think he was being sarcastic, as I did with the woman at the well. Oh, well, okay, I'll just do that. I'll just go and be born again. But the more I read Nicodemus and the more I understood about the original context, the more I think he's playing dumb because he sensed where Jesus was going. And he's taking a step back. He's not sure if he's ready for that. I think the same thing's happening with the woman at the well. She sees where he's going, and she's a little scared. And Jesus bears with her because he is kind and loving, and he does not snuff out the smoldering wick or break that bent reed. He is a kind and gracious and gentle God. See, in verse 17, he says to her, Woman, go and call your husband and come here. And the woman answers him, I have no husband. She tries to shut him down. Yeah, I don't have a husband. And he does this. He's got the come and see. Yeah, I'll sit and have the conversation. But he also has this, I will break you with the law. You must be born again. You must come to me for life. And so Jesus pushes gently, but very firmly for her to acknowledge her sin. And she, she tries to break off in these different tangents. Wait a minute. Do you think you're greater than Jacob, our father, who built this well? That's not the discussion, right? She's trying to push it off in this direction first. Jacob's well was ancient at that time. It's still there today. In fact, when I was in Israel, I didn't get to see it because it's in the West Bank and we wanted to live. But it's still there today and it, and it was something to talk about. It was right there and it was convenient. So she pushes off in that direction. And then she does the same thing. And he won't let it happen. So he says to her, go and get your husband. He is going to bring her to an acknowledgement of her need for a savior, her own sin, and offer her this salvation. He ups the ante. He breaks her with the law. It's always what Jesus does. And it's what must happen for the preaching of the gospel to be effective. People don't need a savior in their mind. And when you offer them one, they're like, what? That's like, it's like offering somebody you know, a boat if they live in the middle of the desert. Until you show them their need for a Savior. Until you use the Ten Commandments or God's Word to show them that they do have a need. They are sinful. They have broken God's law. They, they stand condemned already in the words of Jesus. And he says, you're right in what you say. You're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. You go through guys like this. And the one you're with now is not your husband. You are right in what you say. He, he gently but firmly and maybe with a bit of a barb, shows her her sinfulness, her need. By the way, 
Uh, one other use of this text is that it shows us that when people say, oh, well, we're not married, but you know, we live together, and in God's eyes we're married, we're committed. Uh, no, in God's eyes you're not. These two were together, and God, uh, through Christ, says, no, you're with someone right now who's not your husband. You need to repent of that and receive forgiveness. Providentially, that's exactly what Jesus offers. So she again changes the subject. She's trying to go off in a third direction. Well, I see that uh, you're a prophet. You know all sorts of stuff. Let's talk about this thing. And remember how I said the core of their hatred for each other came from the place of worship, the two different temples. We're trying to keep you from building yours. You're knocking ours down. They're angry with each other. She says, let's talk about that. We'll get mad, but at least we're not looking at my sin. So we say you ought to worship on Mount Gerizim. You say you should worship on Mount Zion. Who's right? This is bringing up very controversial stuff. It'd be like if you were in an awkward conversation and you said, so the Russian team's not allowed in the Olympics, but Russian athletes are. That's weird. Or just, so Trump, huh? Or something like that. <laughs> Except this is theological and she's talking to a rabbi, so it makes tons of sense. You know, it reminds me of when I was in Bible college, one of my professors, he's actually a friend of mine now, Andy Smith. I had him for 10 classes probably. Every semester I had him. Uh, and now, by the way, we've won him over to the American Baptist churches, and he's pastor of First Baptist in Muskegon. Uh, but back then, at least once a year, maybe once a semester, one of us would be like, okay, you do it. All right, yeah. Near the beginning of class, we'd raise our hand and say, we were just talking, Professor Smith, and we're wondering, what comes first, faith or regeneration? Of course, this is the ultimate chicken or the egg theological question, uh, and he knew what we were doing. And yet he couldn't resist. And he'd, and he'd start writing on the board. And that's the wrong question. And here's why he's drawing pictures. And before you knew it, oh, time's up. See you next time. And, and he, he got drawn in by this kind of stuff. People will often bring up a controversial theological issue as a smokescreen to keep the gospel message from, from piercing them right where their deepest need is. I've so many times been bringing the gospel to someone, sharing the gospel, and they'll, and they'll try and go off on, well, yeah, but evolution. I say, oh, that's interesting. And we can talk about that, and it has a bearing here, but not what we're talking about now. Oh, the gay marriage. Okay, yeah, that's important, but I want to talk to you about Christ. Oh, but all the hypocrites in the church. Yep, and all of these things can help me right to the gospel. And that's what Jesus does. He models for us. How this, this, he bears with her, with her attempts to change the subject and, and get the conversation stuck in the weeds to sort of protect herself and avoid her sin from coming to the, to the surface. His model for us is he doesn't say, hey, don't change the subject. We're, we're talking about you right now. He doesn't do that. He's patient and he uses the opportunity to teach her about the kingdom he's inaugurating, the kingdom he's bringing. He says to her, you Samaritans... Worship the God you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. See, he's, he's going to tell her there's an answer, but that she's asking the wrong question, not unlike Professor Smith. The Samaritan Bible, again, only contained the first five books, and I, I've told you how when you're looking at the Messiah especially, the Bible's like a funnel. It starts really broad. Okay, the Messiah is going to come and be from the seed of the woman. Oh, that narrows it down. Uh, yeah, there's only two people, and this one's coming. And, and, and it gets more and more. And so they only have the very, very broad picture 
of how to worship God, of who, who the Messiah will be, of what he will come to do. And so he says, yeah, the salvation is from the Jews. What's been revealed is important. They didn't have Jeremiah 31 to, looking forward to the new covenant in their Bible. But, but it was given all the same through the mouth of the prophet that a time is coming when no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. This is what Jesus is offering. And this is what we need to get to, not stuck out in the weeds. I was watching uh, yesterday on Netflix, uh, there's this thing where David Letterman is interviewing prominent people. There's one with uh, Barack Obama, and then the new one was with George Clooney, and he was talking about his past as, as an Irish Catholic, uh, and all the guilt that he felt, and you know, he had everyone laughing. And he said that he, he used to read about this saint who would put a pebble in her shoe and walk around because that was a way to pay kind of penance for what she had done wrong or, or, or whatever the case. And then he said that because he was in such a small town and he knew that the priest knew everybody's voice, he didn't want to confess all his sins. So he would just confess the ones he was willing to divulge, and then he would go home, he'd put pebbles in his shoes, put them on tight, and jump off his bunk bed again and again. And everyone's laughing uproariously, and I'm next to tears. How tragic that this was happening in a, in a place where Christ ought to be lifted up, that, that no one took him aside and said, listen, your, your sins are covered. You don't need to do this. You can have all the right outward stuff and obsess over all that and not have the gospel. And Jesus is teaching about just that here. He essentially answers her question, yeah, there's a right answer, but ultimately, we're going into a new age. And the answer is neither. Not in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim, but true worshipers of God, the kind of worshipers that God desires, will worship Him in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. The debate about where to worship had a right answer. Jerusalem, that's the short answer. But both sides miss the, the point the true nature of worship. It's so easy to get in these situations where I can win this debate about this side issue, but in doing that, I've lost. Because the person that I wanted to, to point to the cross was throwing this out as a smokescreen. And I bought into it. And I got into this debate, and I said, oh, I'm going to crush this, crush that person. Good for me. That's not the mission. Jesus didn't say, I send you out. Go, therefore, and crush people in debates. He certainly didn't say go out and, and beat people in debates online, for that is the most useless thing on the planet. No, he said go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus models for us keeping it in focus, the need for a Savior and the fact that Jesus came to save sinners. That's his whole mission. And in, in focusing on these other things, the Jews and the Samaritans had missed the point. That, that you don't honor tradition over God himself. Throughout his ministry, Jesus comes to this very point with the Pharisees, with the scribes, with the teachers of the law. He says to people, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Something God said through the Old Testament prophets. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You, you think what I want is every duck in a row, every I dotted, every T crossed, and here, I did the thing. When what I want 
is you to be merciful for your neighbor. You to be kind to the sojourner who's in your country. For you to come with a poor spirit before me and say, I can't. I can't keep the law. I need salvation. He's pointing people toward their own need for a Savior. The Pharisees were guilty of this, but we're guilty of it today as well. He says, no, no, no. Spirit and in truth. If you want to worship me the right way, stop fighting about all the accoutrements and styles and vestments and different things that might go with worship, and instead worship me in spirit and in truth. God does not... You know, you, you ever watch Downton Abbey? Admit it. Come on, Chris. You've, you've watched Downton Abbey once or twice? There, I like it. Okay. Dave, you and I, kind of obsessed, right? They, they would be so obsessed in that, in that era with having the right fork and the right other fork and the right other nine forks in the right spot. They, everything's exact. Everything. Oh my goodness, I am mortified because I'm wearing a white jacket at night when you're supposed to be wearing the black jacket. And this was the approach in the world that Jesus chose to enter with his ministry to worshiping God. John Calvin said the spirit is related to the outward elements and emblems of worship in the same way as the form of something is related to the shadows that it casts. It was important in the Old Covenant because those shadows was all they had to show them what was coming, to foreshadow. But now that Christ has come, the question is, how do we worship? Where do we wor- worship in spirit and in truth? Now, the question often comes up, does spirit here mean the Holy Spirit? And I think the answer is no, although the Holy Spirit is certainly related. It doesn't say the Spirit, but rather just in spirit. Spirit meaning your disposition or your state of mind, basically your attitude here. To, to worship with the right heart. If we, we look at throughout Scripture again and again references to people who might come with the perfect kind of worship and dot all the I's and cross all the T's, but God won't hear it because the heart is not in the right place. Psalm 51, after David has monstrously sinned, he comes in repentance to God and says, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Or in Amos 5, God says outright, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. There was an obsession with all the outward things, and Jesus said that's like cleaning the outside of the bowl, but the inside is still full of filth and dead men's bones and and all sorts of unclean things. The circumcision was such a big deal and they obsessed over it. And the prophets say, don't worry about that until you've circumcised your hearts. Until you're truly penitent. This is what God cares most about. Not that the right place be approached, but that the worshiper approach with the right spirit. And in the church today, we come with the same spirit indwelling us. And I'll tell you, they, they got into some nasty debates back then. You saw Jesus get angry. Woe to you, the teachers of the law and Pharisees. Woe to you. At least they were arguing about some things of substance. Today, whoa. I've seen people flip out over someone taking their pew. A friend of mine who was a youth minister told me once about a, a time he took a, a group of kids out camping, right? 
They got all funky smelling. It was four or five days, and they thought, should we bring them to this nearby church, or should we spare the people? Now nah, they're good kids. They'll, everyone there in the church will understand. So they came in, and they thought, let's just sit in the back. You know, we don't want to get in the middle of it, and, and we don't want to be a distraction. So they all filed in and filled up the back row. Then in came a couple whose seat was obviously the back row. Place was no, you know, fuller than we are today. And the couple had this kind of whispered conversation, debate, huff, went and got chairs, set them behind the back pew, and made a new back row. Back row's ours. Back row's ours. And they didn't, they didn't stop to even say, oh, who are you? Oh, oh are, are you visiting? Or are you, uh, we don't know you. Are, oh, do you know Jesus? No, 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 no. It, it's all about the external. It's so easy to get wrapped up in this. Remember the 90s? I do. I even remember the 90s. Uh, worship wars. All the external. God gets so angry if there's drums. No, 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 no. God just gets so angry if you play the organ and it's too outdated. And, and there, was, there was breaks between brothers and splits of churches over the external. I even know a pastor who left a church because of a row that began with the placement of the pulpit in the middle or off to the side. I guarantee there are people on both sides of that church who don't know Jesus. People who need to hear the gospel, but we're in here going, well, that goes there, that goes there. And if you don't think that kind of thing has ever happened at this church, I got a really cool bridge. It goes to Canada. You can buy it at a discount. It happens everywhere because we're human and because just like the woman at the well, just like Nicodemus, we have a tendency to say, if we focus on all this outside stuff, I can keep my sins hidden and I don't have to grow in Christ. I don't have to have the, the kind of pain and the, the, the opening up of myself and, and allowing God to, to work through his people in my life. So in spirit and then in truth. And it seems like a foregone conclusion, but recognize that this kind of Judaism, this Pharisaical Judaism, it was rooted less in orthodoxy, believing the right things, as in orthopraxy, doing the right things. You can believe different stuff, but as long as you kind of did the right, went through the motions, you're not going to ruffle any feathers. And so there are churches today where that's the case as well, where they'll, they'll even do the thing they've always done, recite the creed, but they don't believe a line of it. It's just something they do. But Jesus says, if you're going to worship me, worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. You cannot worship God except in the truth. And the truth is the gospel. That's what we, we gather around. I, I'm sure that we've got uh, some... I know we got Joe here. He's a, he's a Methodist. <laughs> You know what? We've got some stuff we would differ about. We're cousins. We're not like the Samaritans and Jews where we're so close but so far away. There's, there's differences, but we come together around the gospel. We've worshipped, you've worshipped with Joe if you've ever come to our Holy Week services back when we were with Christ United Methodist uh, because he was a, a church leader there. So you, we worship together around the gospel even though there are some significant doctrinal differences. That's when the kingdom is working right. And yet sometimes there are churches that can do that Link, you know, link arms with, with other churches of other traditions, and yet they can't keep from picking at each other inside over external things. The truth, the gospel, has got to be what, what cements us. What is the gospel? I had a professor in seminary, he's with the Lord now, Bob Repay, and he said, well, he was with the Lord then, but he's dead now. Uh, and he said, 
I'll never forget this. The gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself and what he came and what he did. We can try and spin it off like the woman of the well in all these other directions, political stuff, social stuff, um, psychological stuff. No, the gospel is the person and work of Jesus who came who died, who rose again. He died for our, the forgiveness of our sins. He rose for our justification. And all this stuff, then, is not about us. It's about Christ. And we look at verse 22. Before he even answers the question, Jesus is he's hedging his answer in a, in a very wise way. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He's making sure that she and we hear what he's not saying. He's not saying that the time has come and has already come that you can worship God in any old random way you want and it doesn't matter. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, we see the opposite, that God does care how we worship. He commands us to gather together on the Lord's Day. He commands us to, to worship in an orderly way, that, that he talks about uh, reading Scripture publicly to each other in the, in, the, in the New Testament about how we take the Lord's Supper and that we take the Lord's Supper together about, about all sorts of different things. How the church works. It's, it's in there that, that we see that we do worship God in a particular way and yet the external is not the point. And that worship, it, it can happen spontaneously wherever we are or wherever you are. You know in Acts 17 when Paul's in Athens he comes across almost the same thing, but it's a whole city, not just one person. I guess it's a whole city here as well, the Samaritan woman and, and the whole town. And, and, and Paul sees they have literally, they're worshiping what they do not know because they have an altar that says, to the unknown God. And Paul doesn't just take that and run with it. Go, hey, good for you. Un, your God's unknown, my God's unknown. We'll kind of swirl together in our uncertainty. No, he teaches them. He uses it, just like Jesus does, as a springboard to impart knowledge. It becomes a teaching opportunity because it's not good enough to have the right intentions. Worshiping in spirit and truth means there is truth, which is content. And we're worshiping a God, not that's just this empty vessel for us to fill with whatever we want, but a God who came and revealed himself, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles, that all who believe would have everlasting life. Remember, I told you John's theme uh, thematically again and again is light and darkness. And those who worshipped him with, without knowledge were worshipping in darkness. And so he came to bring the light and shine the light on it. In this picture when he says, living water, what I want to give you that you'll never thirst again, it's not physical, it's the Holy Spirit. I come, I bring salvation, I bring repentance, and then when I leave, I leave the Spirit behind. And if we're worshipping in the Spirit we will also worship in truth because John 14 tells us one thing the Spirit does is teach us the Word of Christ. Content. The content of the faith. The Gospel. Yes, it is truly a priceless thing to come to God's house on the Lord's Day to worship. Yes, it is sinful to neglect it at length unless providentially hindered from coming. But if we think just being here and sitting in these pews and opening these books and reading these words and singing these phrases means that we've truly worshipped, we're missing the point in the same way that the Jews and the Samaritans were in the midst of this debate. The time is coming and has yet come when true worship will be in spirit and in truth. I believe it was the great DC Talk in 1992 
who said, love is a verb. And that's a very profound theological statement. Love is a verb. It's not something you feel. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. It's something you do. Love is a verb. Agape love that God gives us is, is Him doing. When we love each other with, with brotherly love, it's us doing. You can't say, oh, I love you, but I want nothing to do with you. If I love you, I serve you. I forgive you. It's a verb. Worship is a verb as well. It's not a warm, fuzzy feeling inside. That might be the side effect, the, the result, the fruit of us actually fulfilling our chief end, which is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, but that's not the main point. The truth is important here. In many ways, our takeaway from this winds up being the opposite of what's being taught a lot of the times. Okay, so you see, worship, whatever, whoever, however. Remember the connection to the water. The Holy Spirit is within you so you can worship in spirit and truth. We ourselves are the temple. Come together. A temple's got to be orderly. We're the stones. If the stones are just piled all together, you just got rubble. You don't have a temple. And, and Jesus came to shine the light in the darkness and show the truth of the gospel. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Remember Barney, the big purple dinosaur? Here's what you didn't know about Barney. That's just a guy in a suit. It's not even a dinosaur. And it's a 60-pound suit. And built into it is a fan to keep the guy inside from dying because it gets so hot. So when you see Barney, you're not seeing a happy dinosaur. You're seeing a miserable guy in there going, okay, kill me now. Is it our, are we done? But in 1997, something malfunctioned inside that suit with the fan, and it started to smoke. And so the kids on the show looked on in horror as smoke started coming out of Barney. People ran over to Barney and ripped him apart and out crawled a man. <gasps> Those, those kids are all in therapy today. I, and here's the thing. Our, our lies, our mirages, our, our idols, all these things, they might make us happy for a short time, but the truth will come out. Jesus came to bring the truth. Worship Him in keeping with the Scriptures. Worship Him in spirit and in truth. Worship Him in keeping with the character of God that's revealed and the person of Christ, which is the gospel, the person and work of Jesus Christ. The truth matters. And Jesus then drops this truth bomb on her. She, her final attempt to, well, eh, end the conversation is, yeah, Messiah will come. He'll sort all this out. By the way, in this way, the Samaritans were a little more on track than the Jews because the continued sentiment there was, Elijah will come and sort these things out. She says, the Messiah will come and sort these things out. And he says, I who am talking to you am he. I am, I am he. Ego eimi. Ego eimi is the very same phrase, I am, that we see in the Bible. Jesus read the Greek Bible that he and the apostles seem to prefer back in Exodus. What do I tell them your name is? Tell them I am has sent you. This is a claim of divinity. This is a claim to be the Messiah. Jesus almost never does this. He, he, he tells people, don't tell them I'm the Messiah. Not yet. They're not ready. Well, this woman doesn't have all these other ideas swirling around, political notions of what the Messiah will do, military expectations. She's just there, willing to be taught, and willing to understand, and willing to teach. And, and so he says, I am the Messiah. I am. You know that story from Exodus. That's in your Bible. I am. 
Jesus is willing to cross racial, gender, cultural, religious barriers to bring the gospel. And he's not going to be put off by her hard questions, her attempts to move off in different, her controversial issues. He's going to love her through all those things. And that's what the Christian church is called to do as well. There was a couple years ago, someone who attended here for a while, and then they stopped. And I caught up with her. I said, why would you stop coming? She said, well, there's something about my life. Someone at your church didn't like it. They made me feel horrible. And I'm not coming back ever. And you probably don't even know what I'm talking about, and that's okay. Because I think that we've grown since then. But we have to be willing to meet people right where they sit at the well and not demand, no, 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 come over here before I'll even bring the gospel. Oh, no, you got to meet me. Half- no, Jesus didn't meet anyone halfway. He went where they were. He went to where the drunks were. He went to where the hookers were. He went to where the sinners were. And he said, this is what I offer. It's eternal life. It's, it's living water. It's a chance to be born again. And when we live that kind of life, we will worship. That will be, maybe that's the, the ultimate mark of a mature Christian growing in faith is life of worship. That, that, that we can't just say, oh, I got saved back then when I said that prayer. That's over now. Woo! No, every day is worshiping. Worshiping in spirit and truth. Eugene Peterson had this great line, worship does not satisfy our hunger for God. It whets our appetite. The more we worship, the more we want to worship, the more we want to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We approach our God not by rituals, not in some special place that we have to travel to find Him, although we do find Him here when we gather together, but we find Him at the well as well as we go about our business. We worship Him anywhere and everywhere, in spirit and in truth. And we have to be careful about that kind of calcifying and us getting really set in our ways to the point where I'll pull out a chair and make my own back row because that's my seat. That's a, that's a dangerous thing. We have to be careful that our worship, yes, we, we're orderly, and that's good, but that we're not curmudgeonly about it. You know, I remember the first time when we had joint communion with the Nepali, and I had said, we're not going to do blessed be the tie that binds at the end because they don't know it. You're holding hands with everybody, and so you can't really read it, and they will feel excluded. And so when we didn't sing it, there was this like, and I, not just from you, I felt it myself. Like, what are we doing? we got to sing that song because we've always sang that song. And we'll always sing that song except when they're here with us. And there's nothing wrong with that unless it becomes more important than God Himself. More important than us being kind and welcoming to our fellow believers. More important than us sharing the Gospel with those who are lost. If there's a takeaway here, an application, it might be to worship in the next week or two in ways that are not your preference. We're having an Ash Wednesday service on Wednesday. Some people, that's a little liturgical, a little high church for me. Cool, good, come. Worship Him in, in the midst of ashes, repentance, and liturgy. That's good. The next Wednesday night, we have rather an informal uh, thing going on where we, I strum the guitar, we sing some songs, we have a discussion, we have a short meditation. We call this school of prayer. We're praying together. Come to that. That's good. Holy Week, we'll be getting together with our brothers and sisters at Mount Hope Presbyterian Church, which isn't anywhere near Mount Hope, and uh, Berean Bible Baptist and a couple other churches. 
maybe come together there too. But more importantly, this week, find a place to worship that's apart from all that. You know, we, two weeks ago in School of Prayer, we looked at a passage. It was a psalm. It was a psalm of David written while he was in the cave. That's where he was worshiping, in the cave. He was on the run from Saul, and he's worshiping God and pouring out his heart to him right there in that cave. We see Paul. You see Paul and Silas worshiping in a cell, a prison cell, chained to the ground, singing hymns. You can worship in your car. You can worship in your cubicle. But you must worship in spirit and in truth. As we begin to think about going through the Lenten journey starting on Wednesday, perhaps we should be focusing on that. Worshiping God in spirit and in truth. Letting it be less about the outside and more about the inside. This is where we often get stalled. Telling God, I'm not going to try and distract you, and if I do, I want you to, just like Jesus, bulldoze right through it, right to the heart, and make me more and more into the image of the Son. That's my prayer. Let's go to Him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the, the story of the Good Samaritan woman and the, uh, the Savior who came and, and engaged her in conversation. And Lord, that she found that she was indeed sinful, but that she was able to be saved and shared that with such enthusiasm. Lord, we pray that as we reflect on that, we would be filled with a desire, too, to share the gospel. And we would be filled with a desire to live lives of worship. Worship in spirit and in truth. Worship with the right heart and mind. Worship with poverty of spirit, taking up our cross and denying ourselves and clinging to the truth of the gospel. In your holy name we pray. Amen.